You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning, King's Cross. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. They answered, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness, so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Pharaoh also said, Look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from their labor. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, Don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men, then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to their decept- to deceptive words. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, This is what Pharaoh says, I am not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, Finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, Why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today, as you did before? So the Israelite foremen went in and cried to help, cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it is your own people who are at fault. But he said, You are slackers, slackers. That is why you are saying, Let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble when they were told, You cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people, and why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak your name, he has caused trouble for his people, for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go, and because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. 
I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from this land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's word. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I am Chad, one of the pastors here, and we are in Exodus, as you can tell. Uh, what an amazing passage. It's, we're covering a lot of ground today, uh, but, but really with, with a singular focus. Um, <clears throat> God's name. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 5 through 7. We're going to have some text on the screen as well. I'm not going to read through it in entirety. We did hear the majority of the story just then. We wanted you to hear the context of that story uh, to set the stage, but I want to come together first in prayer that the Holy Spirit might be with us and teach us today um, as we look in Exodus. So if you would pray with me. Uh, Father, in your kindness, we have the opportunity to open up your word and to hear from you. And God, I pray that we would, um, we would today learn from you and your word, that you would teach us, that your spirit would work in us, God, and guide us to truth. And Lord, ultimately, we would see you and we would see Christ more clearly, that our hearts would overflow with your grace and kindness, and that we would bear your name. We're so grateful for you and grateful for what you've done and demonstrated here in the text uh, as you've redeemed Israel, God, you offer that salvation to us. And I pray, Lord, that we trust more deeply in you day by day and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. What's in a name? Juliet from that famous passage of Romeo and Juliet. Maybe you're familiar with that play. I had to read it in, in high school. Anybody else uh, read that? Or maybe you are more familiar with the Claire Danes version of the movie. That's a little older but I'm, I remember it to be very fairly fond, fondly. Um, but what's in a name is what Shakespeare asked. A whole lot. We put a whole lot of weight in a name. Names can bring honor and shame. There's cultures that put a lot of weight in that, but even, even more so in myself. I mean, I don't think I come from a quote-unquote honor or shame culture, but I mean, if my kids are out acting a fool, disrespecting my name, that feels, I feel the weight of that. Anybody else? Am I just, that's too much? But we see that, that names can bring honor, names can bring shame. You can have the wrong name. Anybody ever heard of the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys? <laughs> if you were a Hatfield, hey, nothing, you can't get around a McCoy and vice versa. Very deadly feud that goes on just simply because of the name in which they were born into. You can think too highly of your own name. Uh, my, my father, when I was growing up, was in uh, local politics and was somewhat of a well-known local regional name there in the state of Virginia. 
Um, and, uh, and that's a little bit of my background growing up. But as politicians do, you, go, you went out, you shook hands, you kissed babies. And one of the trips he likes to share a story about is that he went to a local assisted living facility uh, because, you know, also visiting with the elderly in your community, especially the ones that are still voting. Um, and so he's, he's shaking hands. He's meeting people. They're happy to, to know him. A lot of folks in that home knew who he was. And he came up to one little lady who seemed disinterested in the entire event. And he, he bent over and he said, hi, ma'am, how are you? Do you know who I am? And she said, looked at him with all sincerity and said, no, sir, I sure don't. But if you go up to the counter in the front, that lady up there, I'm sure can help you out. So he kind of thought a little bit too much of himself. This lady said, I don't know your name, but she, I'm sure she can tell you. Uh, you can disrespect somebody's name. What's been pretty uh, hot in the news of late, if you will, uh, was the Oscars. I didn't know about it until the next day when I heard that Will Smith went up front and smacked uh, Chris Rock, right? Okay, he did that out of disrespect to his wife, is at least uh, surrounding the details. But what is notable is that when he sat down in his seat, I will not quote exactly the profanities in which he used, but I will say this. He said, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. In fact, the song has the refrain in it. You might be familiar with it, depending on the radio station you listen to. Put some respect on my name. Last week, when we talked about Exodus, God shows up to Moses, and he tells him how to introduce him to his people. He gives his name. I am. And in this entire next passage, where Moses now goes faithfully to Pharaoh to, <clears throat> to proclaim the message that God's given him, he does it in God's name. And God's name is throughout this entire portion of Scripture and very prevalent throughout all of Scripture. If, as believers, this is an important context to think about because we bear God's name. We understand and believe that from the beginning of time when God created man and woman, he created them in his image to bear his image, to bear his name. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with it, with my glory. And when Israel was in Egypt and they were oppressed, they were doing exactly that. They were being fruitful and multiplying, and that freaked Pharaoh out. So he tried to crush that, and he tried to restrict that. But God heard their cries, and God shows up on the scene, and he says, I hear you. I remember my covenant. I am your God, and you are my people. And he sends Moses to carry that, that message of redemption to Pharaoh. And believers, as we bear God's name, we represent the family of God. And he has us on a similar mission. We know a mission of redemption. I just want to, from the beginning, point out through this text, and I want to be clear that it is difficult for us to consider if you balance the weight of God's name, his glory, his righteousness, and try to bear that and represent it in our own bodies, that's a crushing weight. I mean, I've already, in the time of started to speech, uh, I'm sorry, started to, to, to preach, not speech. Uh, I can't even talk right. Uh, as I begin to preach here, or even illustrations I might be pointing to, I wouldn't recommend going and listen to that song or whatever. You know, these are, but we fail and we fumble and we stumble because we're imperfect people, yet God places his name on us. 
We represent him. And so I, don't, I simultaneously don't want us to, 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 to lose that weight and disrespect his name in that. But I also want us to see from this context of scripture that there's a way in which we can represent God faithfully still, even in our frailty. So, so here's the question I pose today that I want us to think about. How do we represent God faithfully on his mission in the face of opposition? Because there are many. This world is opposed to God's name. It's opposed to God's name. Why is it that so quickly religions of the world will want to lump together all religions under one and say they're all the same God? We would, never, we would never stand that for our own selves. You can't lump me together with a, a whole bunch of other guys and you guys are all the same guys. No, we're not. You're not going to throw me into a yard of, of people of various degrees. I mean, you're not going to put me, Hitler, Stalin, and a bunch of people all in a row and say, yeah, they're all the same. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. The character and heart of God is tied up in his name. And he is not like other gods. And likewise, the reason and the way we differentiate, just like God demonstrates and shows himself to us in his name here in, 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 in the text of Exodus, we're told later in scripture that we see God even more clearly in the person of Christ. So that we now even tighten up further and see, not only we know God by his name here, but we know God as we see Jesus. And so we bear that name, we bear that mission in the face of opposition. We're going to be opposed to the name of Christ. We're going to be opposed to thinking that God of Exodus is different from any other God of, of the Islamic faith, of any other accepted religion that's all trying to work its way to some higher being. They're all the same, but they're not. How do we carry a message of hope when the enemy is always working against God's purpose? And here's what I would propose, and I think is evident in the scripture and in the text here. We represent God faithfully on his mission in the face of opposition by resting our confidence in his name. Now, I, I take a step back because earlier when we looked at, and I think we had a slide about this, we looked about the things we want to learn and grow in through Exodus. We talked about trusting in his promises. <clears throat> What we'll see hopefully here today is that the reason his promises have any weight is because he stakes his promises on his name. On his name. So let's look at the text. Let's look at the scripture. Let's open up what happens in Exodus. And I want to draw out and highlight four elements of this story. Moses going to speak to Pharaoh. Pharaoh oppressing Israel further. God meeting with Moses. And ultimately Moses continuing on on the mission he's given him. All of these things happening prior to uh, the, the real supernatural stuff happening. I know we've already had the burning bush. okay? But this is all still interrelational. This is something we, could, we should be able to relate to directly. None of us are throwing down our, our staff and having snakes crawl out of it. I mean, you know what? Try it in faith. But, you know, at the same time, that hasn't happened yet. We're not going to read about that portion. We're not talking about the plagues yet. We're talking about a man who is sent by God with a message for a people who faces oppression and faces opposition and walks faithfully in it. So I want to look at four elements of this story that draw out this truth 
And I also want to connect God's mission, his message in Egypt to what he's doing today through us. Can we do that today? Let's do that. So the first thing we want to look at is that there is an emissary that's sent by God. An emissary. I use that word very specifically. I started with messenger, but I went with emissary because here's the deal. It holds a lot of weight. It's similar in terms to like ambassador or something that represents a kingdom, but an emissary is someone historically that goes representative of a very specific person or kingdom or nation with a very specific message they need to deliver. And that's who Moses is. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. He delivers the message. He comes with the message because God gave it to him. And then in chapter 3, I mean, verse 3 of that same text, after Pharaoh opposes him, they answer him, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. He has met with us. That's also the weight of that carries. It's not just met with us, but he is with us. And so Moses knows he is representing God. He knows he's coming to Pharaoh as a representative and an emissary of God. And in verse 10 of chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses again to continue that story, that message and says, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from this hand. Actually, through this entire message, several times in this passage, God is continually telling Moses, go tell him this, go tell him this. And here's something to note about this emissary that God sends, that it should be super encouraging to us, okay? First off, then when we look at Moses, especially in this passage, he is timid, he is hesitant, he is discouraged, and he's ineloquent. He says over and over again, I, I, I can't even speak well. Like me, stumbling over my words up here. I don't want to pick the words. He's like, uh, he's nervous. He's, he's hesitant about going back to this place that God's sending him to. In fact, in the last portion of story, God is angry with, with Moses at the burning bush because he keeps pushing back. Verse 22 through 23. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, why have you caused trouble for this people? He's discouraged. And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name. He has caused trouble for his people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. Again, chapter uh, 6, verse 12, but Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? And repeats the same concern in verse 30, since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? We talked about this uh, if you want to listen to Aaron's uh, sermon when he preached last week about how God prepares Moses despite all of these weaknesses, but I want to draw and point to this to say, for us, let's all be encouraged because we, God can still use us in our weakness, and God still presses in our weakness, and God also still asks for obedience in our weakness. Because even though Moses is weak. He still equips and sends Moses. He gives him his, his brother Aaron. He says, you can't speak well? Here's Aaron. Use him. Let him speak for you. What Moses didn't even realize, and probably many of you might not realize, is that throughout your life, he prepared Moses before this time even came. Think about the fact that Moses had an audience with Pharaoh. Just walked in. They don't even get, we don't get a hint of him having to do anything special. He just like walks in and like, hey, Pharaoh, I need to tell you something. This is not readily, this is not normal for your off-the-street dude who's some Hebrew guy who's normally a slave working in the fields or out making stone, okay? You don't walk into Pharaoh, but guess where Moses grew up? In Pharaoh's courts. 
He, he very well might have had a relationships already. He may have known this Pharaoh. In, in, in Egypt, coming up as Moses, Moses would have been trained in the house of Pharaoh very well, educated. He didn't appreciate the way God providentially prepared him even for this moment. This is not uncommon in God's economy. I mean, look at, look at uh, Paul. Before Paul was a prophet, he was a zealous Pharisee, loved the law, was trained up by the best. And God took that and used that to use him as a messenger, an apostle to the Gentiles. A man who knew God's word and could preach powerfully and teach. And he used that for his purpose, which was not Paul's from the beginning. And for you and I, though, we may feel weak in ourselves. There's ways in which God is preparing you for what he has in store. There are countless stories of men and women who face struggles and difficulties that God uses them to touch, to teach, to speak on his behalf in a very unique way in the lives of the people around them. Moses is no different and neither are we. It's also important to draw that as he prepared him, he also gave them credentials. The genealogy shows up here, and it sometimes sticks out. We're like, why are these genealogies? Anybody love reading the genealogies when they go through the Bible? Some people are just all about it, right? These, they're really, really important and helpful. But usually, whenever it has like a beginning of the new year, kind of like, I'm going to read through the Bible, they start dwindling. Come genealogies, you get the numbers and counting and all this kind of stuff. Like, eh, do I really need to read the whole one? I've read this part. But they're important. In fact, there are cultures, there are like lost cultures that are recorded as coming to faith in God through the genealogies because of history and their tradition and their ancestors and how important that was and what that validated for them. So it's not insignificant. And here, uh, God lists out in the book a, a genealogy of Moses and Aaron, but even more so than just Moses, it's actually around Aaron. It's almost like trying to put his street cred together. All right, like anybody reading this who's Hebrew, like just in case you're wondering, yeah, God came to Moses in the burning bush, but Aaron's also, also equipped. And so we read in here the genealogy, the credentials that are, that are laid out, and I'm not going to read through all the names for you. Um, and, as, and the reason I say it's really mainly about Aaron is because the beginning talks about the sons of Reuben. These are <clears throat> the heads of their father's families. It talks about Reuben. It talks about Simeon. And then it gets to Levi. And what it only seems, it almost seems like, this is going to be a normal read through the genealogies, but in fact, it only mentions Reuben and Simeon so that it can place where Levi is in the family because it doesn't talk about them anymore. And it doesn't go past Levi. It continues down Levi's family, and it gets all the way down to Aaron. And it only goes one step further to Phineas. And it talks about Aaron and centrally around him and who he is. And here's why it's important. Aaron is prepared. He's a Levite. He is a priestly caste. Okay, there's some of his credentials as one who might speak for God. But it's also important to draw out that even in this history that's written down, though we've talked about the 400 years of struggle, that in Aaron's legacy, his genealogy, there is faithfulness in his family. The names actually speak to this. We talk about God's name being important. Uh, the name Elzevan shows up in here. That, is, that means God has protected the name Eleazar is in there. That means God has helped. Elkanah is in here, and that means God has created. And the last name is not a name that in itself means anything about God in particular, but it's Phineas. 
And if you read further in the story of Phineas, he is, he is <laughs> zealous for God. Numbers 25.11 records that when Phineas heard of unfaithfulness in a, in a family who would bring a Midianite into the camp when they weren't supposed to, he went in with a spear and ran it through that man and his wife. Now, I'm not asking you to go run spears through anybody. This is a different cultural conversation we can have about it. But God commends him by saying, Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal. There is faithfulness in Aaron's family. This is Aaron's grandson. And God was faithful to them throughout the generations. And so it might seem like for us that we might not be well equipped for this mission. We might not be well equipped to represent God's name, but God doesn't make a mistake. God doesn't make a mistake. He calls those he equips. And he equips those he calls. And so Aaron has been sent along with Moses as an emissary to Pharaoh. But we also now have a better Moses in Christ. In Hebrews, it says that, great, that God, uh, Christ is the great high priest. He is our mediator. Though Moses and Aaron are of the Levitical caste, they speak for God. Christ shows us God. He tells his disciples, when we see Christ, we see God. Believers, we also now standing on this side of the cross are ambassadors for Christ. We represent the kingdom. The words we speak, the actions that we take reflect Christ to a watching world. 1 Corinthians also says we are ministers of reconciliation. 1 Peter calls us a nation of priests, mediators of God's message. So we bring a message to the world like Moses brings a message to Pharaoh. And what's the message? Well, that's the next thing we're going to look at. What's the message? God is calling his people out of bondage, a message of freedom. Look at this, a clear message from God in verses uh, 5, I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 5. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. Then in verse 2 of chapter 6, then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant in them, with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And we're going to go on through that passage because God says some very important things. But here's what I want to draw out for us. God spoke. God spoke, and that's significant. It's significant because when we look throughout history and the ancients, people were desperate to find out what God wanted to say. They would do all kinds of things. Uh, matter of fact, there's, there's evidence of people, they would sacrifice animals and then search through the intestines to see if they can get a, a message from God. There are ways in which people wanted to find out what God would command for them. But in this text, what we see is that God came to Moses and delivered a super clear message for Pharaoh. And it has three parts. The first one's a command. He says, worship me. Worship me. I'm, the, I'm God. I am Yahweh. Worship me. I am worthy of your worship. 
And Moses delivers that. Let them go out into the wilderness so they may sacrifice to the Lord our God. It's a message in which we take even Jesus passing on that says the greatest commandment is this, to honor, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, complete and absolute worship. So the first message he brings is one that's a command to worship God. The second is a warning because with the, with the worship, with the command to worship, when we don't follow that, he tells Pharaoh, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. And now it's also to note here that he's not talking about just the Israelites. This is a threat to Pharaoh. He's being very clear that God demands our worship and there are consequences if we don't. It's why in the rest of this passage that Pharaoh gets so worked up. Hey, let him go or God's bringing plague and sword. But God doesn't end there. He doesn't end with just simply the command for us. He doesn't end with a warning because here's the deal. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says the wages of sin is death. That's the warning. The command is to honor God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul. But we can't do that in ourselves. Just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't allow the people to go worship him. They were in bondage to slaves. They were slaves to sin. They couldn't go on their own. So what do we do? We expect that God's now just going to bring death to all people? No, because the third part of his message is promise. There is a command to worship him. There's a warning of consequences when we don't. But the third thing is there's a promise. And that's in verse 6 through 8 of chapter 6. There are actually seven I will statements. Seven I wills. And here's why this is significant. Because God gives a command to his people because he's worthy of his worship. He tells us there's consequences when we don't worship him as he should be worshipped. But we also, in, we are incapable in ourselves to do so. So the promise that God, bring is, God brings is, he will make it possible. I will do it. What does he say in verse 6 to 8? Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. The first thing he tells them is that he's going to free them from bondage to sin. He is going to free them from their bondage. I'm sorry, they're, they're from their bondage. The first two I wills are he is going to be the one that frees them from their bondage. Pharaoh's in the way. Pharaoh won't let them worship. The consequences are real, but I'm going to make it happen. See, we're told in Romans chapter 6 that we're slaves to sin. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 that we are dead in sin. The state of man, the state of all men and women before God is dead and slaves to sin apart from his grace, apart from his freedom, apart from him doing what he tells the Egyptians, he will free us. I will rescue you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will free you from that sin. The second thing that he promises here is in chapter seven or verse seven. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God. 
This is when he puts his name on us because this is a promise of adoption. This is a promise of adoption. Ephesians 1 also goes on to say we are adopted in Christ in the same way. God shows up on the scene and he says, I am the Lord. Tell them my name. And let's not miss the importance of God's name because there's a very interesting verse that I've passed over and I don't want to do so. It's actually in the very beginning of this passage where he says in chapter uh, 6 that he is, he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. And that's a really strange statement because actually he does introduce himself as the Lord to Abraham and he does introduce himself to Jacob. Here's why God says this. It's not like he has amnesia. Oh, that's right. I didn't tell him my name was the Lord. This is the same name Yahweh that he tells Moses I am. And here's the reason he says here that they did not know me by that name. It's not that they weren't aware of the name Yahweh. What they knew about God was El Shaddai, God Almighty, all-powerful God, God who created all things. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. They knew me that way. They knew my power. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given my promises, but they did not know me as the God that keeps his promise. You will know me by that name. I am. I do not change. I do not waver. I gave my promise and I will keep it. This is the reason I say that our confidence and our faithfulness is rooted in his name. Because he stakes it all on his name. That I am the Lord. And then throughout this entire a passage of promises he says my name is the lord tell the israelites i am the lord i will take you as my people and i will be your god you will know that i am the lord your god you will know i keep my promises who brought you out from the forced labor of egyptians I will bring you to the land that swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that promise that I made, and I will give it to you as a possession. Why? Because I am the Lord. He gives a freedom from he gives a promise to free them from bondage. He tells them, "I will not only free you, but I will make you part of my family. You are my people, adopted into my family. And not only are you my family, you're not just adopted. But this is this is not to be missed either. Someone who's in the family." Yeah, you get all the benefits of that, but he also promises inheritance. You're not only down here in the low end. You could be in the family and be the last born son on the, on the whatever least favorite wife side in the Bible, right? Okay? But in this case, God says, yeah, while historically you know firstborns and all them, they get all the inheritance, I'm going to make you the one who's my enemy and who's a bondage to slave. I'm going to make you my family and not that I'm going to give you an inheritance. And why am I going to do all these things? I am the Lord. I am the God who keeps his promise. See, Pharaoh didn't actually receive this promise. This comes later. Pharaoh got the warning. He got the command. But he stood as an enemy of God. He had no faith in the Lord. 
The gospel, if you will, was given to the Israelites, the promise. And instead of responding like Pharaoh, we see as an example when the, when the gospel is preached to those who would hear it and know how they stand before God, they would hear and look for the promise. Peter preaches in, in Acts, and he preaches and says, look what you've done. You've killed Christ. Look at your guilt. And guess how the crowd responds? What do we do? And that's when Peter gives the promise. Repent and know the Lord. Know him. God came so that his people would know the Lord. But he faced opposition. And now Pharaoh is going to know the Lord. What's the third element of the story? Hardened opposition to God. Hardened opposition to God. This is not to be overlooked because the story that is given, when Pharaoh is commanded to free his people, Pharaoh responds with pride, dismissiveness, insult to God's name, and instead he oppresses God's people further. Here's where he insults them. He says this, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing, oh, take it back, step back to verse two. But Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God introduces himself, I'm the Lord, and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. And this is not a matter of like, I don't know who he is. This is a matter of, I don't recognize him as anything important. And we know that's true because his next line is, I don't know the Lord. Besides, I won't let them go. I don't care who he is. I don't care who the Lord is. Pharaoh stands in direct opposition to the Lord who gives his promises throughout this entire message. When, when, when Moses commands that they would go out and worship him, the word there is serve him, to worship, to work. It's used the same way. Pharaoh says, no, I don't know this Lord. They can't serve him. They need to serve me harder. That's actually the contrast that's set. That Pharaoh says, yes, you want to call out your servants to serve you? They're not yours. They're my servants. And they must work harder for me. He takes away the straw and puts the overseers on them to push them faster and harder. And what's interesting about this story is that historians will look at this and say, whoever wrote this knew about the economy of the Egyptians because it articulates it very well. That they would have slaves. They would have foremen over the slaves. They had straw that were required for, for building and, and, at and they had a, um, the word I'm looking for here, they had a quota that they had to hit. There's actually detailed records printed out of how many bricks they had hit that each day. Because Egypt realized if they had the workers and they had a number they had to hit, they got better, more work out of them. I mean, they were efficient. And so in this case, we see, this is he uses it against Israel. He says, clearly you want to leave and go into the woods or into the wilderness to worship this God and serve him because you have too much free time. So how about we make it a little harder? He opposes God's purpose and he drives God's people into despair. And we know they're in despair because the way they appeal to Pharaoh. In verses 15 through 16, read this. The Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way. No straw has been given to 
your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it is your own people who are at fault. When Israel's oppressed and pushed down, they turn to where they're comfortable, serving Pharaoh. And I don't want to fault them too much because they have 400 years of oppression and that is a damaging thing on a psyche. But note at the end of last passage how excited they were for freedom that they worshiped God. But now that Pharaoh turns up the heat, how quickly they turn back to Pharaoh. Your servants, your servants, your servants. And brothers and sisters, as we go out into the world and we speak to a world that is lost and in bondage to Satan, sin, and death, they don't even recognize their slavery to sin. Do not be surprised. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spirits who are at work. And the enemy doesn't like when God's people want to go worship him. So when we speak the message of hope, to a, to a world in slavery, the enemy is going to turn up the heat. We don't ever want to preach a gospel that says, come to God, come to Jesus, and your marriage is going to be awesome. Your kids are going to behave all the time. Your, your family life and relationships are going to be perfect. This is the damaging effect of a prosperity gospel that puts all of the importance on the perfection of your life today if you follow Jesus. Because here, when Israel tries to follow after God and worship him, it gets harder. And we have to be an encouragement to those who would ever come to faith in Christ that it might get harder, but God is worth it. His name is worth it. He is worthy of our worship. See, the thing about Pharaoh here is he's kind of a lame duck, if you will. What I mean by that, if you're familiar with presidential elections, that, that when the president, the new elected president is, is, is not yet appointed yet, they refer to that president as a lame duck president, meaning he doesn't have a lot of power, he doesn't have a lot of clout. People can just wait him out. You know, The opposite party can be like, we well, don't have to vote on your stuff because we got our guy coming in. You know what I'm saying? Pharaoh acts like he's holding all the cards. But God has already promised that he will defeat Pharaoh. In the same way in Genesis, he promises to crush Satan's head. And even though Satan might turn up the heat and the enemy might try to depress and might try to discourage God's people, we know God wins in the end. Satan is a lame duck. Yeah, he can make your life miserable today, and he might, and he can make it difficult in this interim. But like, like Paul says, this momentary suffering fails in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits me. We're not defeated in Christ. We are more than conquerors. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we know the God who has already defeated Satan, sin, and death, and we can trust in his name. And what does Moses do immediately when he faces um, challenges, when he faces oppression? He goes to God. He prays. 
And that's an encouragement for you, encouragement for all of us. As we face that trial, as we face that struggle, recognize that even as Israel comes to Moses and, and they're defeated and they say, why did you do this to us? Why are you putting us through so much um, difficulty? It's because of you that Pharaoh has crushed us, that Pharaoh has made our work harder. Moses turns to God and said, what do I do? You're not doing what I felt you were going to do. Everything was going great. I showed up on the scene. I told them that God said he was saving them. They were like, praise Jesus, no, praise the Lord. They got down on their knees. They worshiped him. Now it's hard. And he goes to God in prayer. And so as we face challenges today, as we do expect to walk out of these doors, and if we carry the name of Christ, if we bear God's name and we preach a message of repentance in God, we're going to face oppression and difficulty. Go to God in prayer. Find yourself at the foot of the cross. Go boldly into the throne room before God and ask, God, what are you doing and what do I need to do differently? I know sometimes the answer is like with Moses, just do what I already told you to do. Just a heads up, just do it, okay? Just do it. And that's where we see the fourth element, little different, but element over the whole entire story. We see faithful confidence in God. We see it evidenced in Moses and Aaron in the way they walk through this. We see it clearly in the way that Moses talks, that he's faithfully confident in God because he comes to God, he hears what God has to tell him to do, and he goes and he does it. Look at verses six and seven of chapter seven. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Pharaoh opposed them. Israel was, Israel was dejected and defeated, and they blamed him. The great power of Pharaoh opposed him. The oppression of God's people was made worse. The people came, that he came to save, blamed him. But God told him it was going to be worse before it would get better. In fact, in this entire passage, God is questioned by Moses multiple times. Hey, why are you doing this? I'm not a good speaker. Why did you send me? Why is it not better for your people? From man's perspective, Moses' run through this passage as a redeemer was not very successful. Understand that. He shows up and God's people don't move. They makes it worse. That's not the story of my life. I'm not trying to go in. I mean, last night, from man's perspective, Duke's run at a, at a championship bid did not go well. UNC defeated them. And I'm a little sad. Maybe a lot of people in here don't care about sports. They don't always, those, those illustrations don't always work. But that's by the world standard, winning and loss columns. God doesn't work in that win and loss column the way we see it. See, from man's perspective, Moses' run is unsuccessful, but the Bible challenges us to redefine success. Scripture, in fact, looks at history through God's eyes, and what we can do is look forward into Hebrews chapter 11, and we can read what God says about Moses. All right, so this is how he describes Moses. Verse 24 through 27 of Hebrews 11, he says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin, simply by choosing to associate with God's people. God saw that as faithfulness. He trusted God's name and God's people. Verse 26, why? For he considered a reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. Now, this is interesting because Moses didn't have Jesus. 
that he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. But this is what he did have. He had, he knew God and God's name and he trusted in his promise. And though he did not know Christ yet, by name and visualization, Christ wasn't standing in front of him. He knew God would fulfill his promise no matter what it took. And what we know is ultimately that meant his faith was in Christ because that's how God redeems his people. He was looking ahead to the reward. In verse 27, by faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. In the end, Moses' confidence was not in himself. I'm a poor speaker. I don't, it's not working well. Things aren't going great. His confidence was in God's name and his promise. As one who sees him who is invisible. Even expressing personal doubt, Moses knew God was with him. That's what it says in the passage. He tells Pharaoh, God met with us. He is with us. He has sent us. Moses is timid. He is hesitant, but he encountered God. He knew him. And that's what gave him confidence. He was successful in God's eyes. Why? Because of that phrase, he did just as the Lord commanded him. He trusted him and he obeyed. Because he had faith which is what all believers throughout time have lived by. Habakkuk says it, Romans repeats it, Paul says it in Romans, the righteous live by faith. Faith in what? What we don't see, but in the God we know. Moses is an encouragement to my own human frailty. For those of us in Christ, God sees us in our frailty through Christ's righteousness. He is infinitely gracious, patient, infinitely merciful there is more mercy in christ than sin in us and we can trust in that we carry that message to a world enslaved to sin in bondage oppressed by the enemies of god we should expect opposition we should expect things might be worse before they get better don't trust in your own abilities don't trust in your abilities to articulate the gospel you won't say it right something will mess up i do all the time if i think too hard i'm like what am I even, what's this illustration? Don't be discouraged by your inability to articulate anything at all. In fact, be encouraged like Moses was. Spurgeon, when he looked back at Moses in this exact story, he says this about him. He says, I am persuaded that Moses, after he had got over his first little difficulties, he calls these little difficulties, was strong in faith. There he stood with the wondrous rod, turning water into blood and slaying all their fish, covering the heavens with blackness, turning the dust into living creatures, bringing hail, and doing it all as calmly and quietly as he should do, who feels that he is the voice of God. How steadily he kept at his work, with what diligence he persevered in it, till at last the tenth plague found Moses unmoved ready to conduct the people away to the Red Sea and to bring them out into the wilderness. O servants of God, be calm and confident. Go on preaching the gospel. Go on teaching in the Sunday school. Go on giving away tracts. Go on with steady perseverance. Be ye sure of this. You shall not labor in vain or spend your strength for naught. Do you still stutter? Are you still slow of speech? Nevertheless, go on. Have you been rebuked and rebuffed? Have you had little else than defeat? This is the way of success. Toil on 
and believe on. Be steadfast in your confidence, for with a high hand and an outstretched arm, the Lord will fetch out his own elect. He will fetch out some of them out by you. Only trust in the Lord and hold on the even tenor of your way. Beloved, you are an ambassador for Christ. You are a messenger of the greatest news the world has ever heard, the message of freedom, that Christ has come to set the captives free. Put your confidence in God and his promises, in his name. When you're discouraged, come to God like Moses with your doubts. Kneel at the foot of the throne in prayer. Refresh your soul in his presence. Then go back out into this world as one who's experienced God, who knows and trusts in his name and knows he's with you. And if you're an unbeliever, the message is clear. Don't let pride, fear, pain blind you from the free gift of salvation in Christ. Repent. Turn to Christ and be free from bondage to sin. There is no longer condemnation for those in Christ. How do we represent God faithfully on his mission in the face of opposition? Well, we represent God faithfully on his mission by resting our confidence in his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you kindly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace, for your love for your people, and God, for the generous mercy that you pour out on us. Thank you, God, that you promise, as you did to the, Egyptian, to the Israelites, to, to free us from slavery to sin. Thank you for your promise uh, to, to make us a part of your family. And God, thank you for um, your inheritance that you generously offer to your people. Lord, I pray that we would trust more deeply in you and know you more deeply, that we would know you in your name, that we would love you and see your face more clearly, and that we would be more like Christ. And I ask all this in his name. Amen.